All right, hey y'all, we're back with another episode of Understand South Carolina. This week we're talking about how the coronavirus pandemic has affected Charleston's drinking and dining scene. I'm Emery Parker. And I'm Emily Williams. We are joined today by food editor-in-chief critic Hannah Raskin and food and drink reporter Dave Infante. So thank you both for joining us. So this episode's going to be kind of a, a crossover of our other podcast, um, The Winnow, which you should definitely look at, look up and, and subscribe to. Um, but we thought, you know, that there's like this huge, we've been talking obviously on this show a lot about coronavirus, and um, obviously one of the most impacted um, industries has been Charleston restaurants. And I think this week in particular is really interesting because as of Monday, uh, the state is actually allowing outdoor dining. So uh, we're going to discuss what's going on with the restaurant industry and what it might look like for this industry to reopen. And of course, the other key question is how restaurants are going to be able to recover financially or if they'll be able to recover. We've already seen some pretty high profile spots announced that they were closing because of the coronavirus pandemic. And then, of course, when we're looking at unemployment figures, um, I know that week after week, restaurants have been that top category with the highest number of unemployment claims, really by a wide margin. Um, so like Emery was saying, this is an interesting week for restaurants because so we're recording this podcast on Tuesday afternoon uh, and on Monday, restaurants were allowed to reopen for outdoor dining. Um, so, Hannah, I know you wrote about this uh, last night and it was in the paper today. Uh, what did you see yesterday? Um, did you actually go out to some of those restaurants that reopened their patios? It did. So I went out to Shem Creek, which I assumed was going to be sort of the nexus of the action since it was prior to all of the various orders mandating closure. Um, it was one of sort of the last holdouts where people were continuing to party, I believe, with St. So basically, in Charleston terms, this pandemic ran from St. Patrick's Day to Cinco de Mayo. So it, it, we were fortunately didn't miss those big party opportunities, or at least that was the sentiment of the people who were on the patio of <laughs> the Shemkri. Thank goodness. Yeah. Thank goodness. So what restrictions have been lifted at this point? And of course, we're not allowing dine-in inside restaurants yet, but do we have an idea of when that might be allowed? That should be soon. So the South Carolina Restaurant Association is pushing back against McMaster on being open for Mother's Day. So I don't think the order is going to go into effect for indoor dining to be allowed in advance of this weekend. But most the feeling is will be pretty much immediately thereafter. All right. And not having restaurants open for dining on Mother's Day, that was actually something that people within the restaurant industry wanted. Right. What was their reasoning for that? Right. They didn't want to be open because they needed more time to prepare. Mother's Day is typically one of the biggest days on the restaurant calendar, no matter what, um, because you're also you're dining out in large groups, many of which would be prohibited under the uh, the rules in other states. Um, so you're bringing out these big groups. Um, so even more so than Valentine's Day, even more so, you know, than the night before Thanksgiving, this is a huge hospitality day. And so you're dealing with an industry that's been shut down for six weeks which means there's nothing in their coolers, there are no employees, and the lingering question of whether employees will come back. So being given a few days and being thrown onto the floor on the biggest day of the year is a nightmare scenario for a restaurant. Yeah, I, mean, I guess I, I'm really curious, what what have you been hearing from the, the restaurant industry, from restaurant owners and, and from workers? Like, how are, how are they feeling? What, what do they think? 
it's all over the map. I mean, it's all over the map. Uh, there are certainly folks who just couldn't wait to reopen, and we saw that yesterday. It looks like there are about 60, 65 restaurants that opened a patio yesterday. And I, I should clarify as well that the order allows any restaurant to set up a tent. So even if you don't have outdoor dining, you're pretty much good to go. And remember here in South Carolina, the weather is beautiful. So it doesn't it, it doesn't scale back the volume by saying it's just outdoor. Um, so there are restaurant owners who are super enthusiastic about it. And there are some who are really happy to stick with what they've been doing, which is take on delivery. I'm curious with the restaurants that opened on Monday, what you were seeing in terms of how they were conducting business that day. Are, are we talking servers wearing masks or we're, gloves? Um, were tables spaced differently? What are we seeing so far? Um, so again, of all the uh, of all the states, South Carolina has been pretty much the least restrictive, or among the least restrictive, in what you have to do when you reopen. Um, so they are complied with the law because there isn't much to it. So it is suggested by South Carolina that tables be eight feet apart. It is suggested that dining groups be held to eight people. That seemed to be the case, but as to whether um, you know restaurants were going to put sanitizer out for folks to use, if they were going to have their servers or masks that varies tremendously from one place to another, literally right next door. I mean, I'm, I'm really fascinated by what, what the business of running a restaurant is going to look like in the, in the next couple of weeks. I mean, I, I personally downtown, I saw a lot of people out yesterday, I, I guess we'll, we'll see is that excitement over like the first day or, you know, do, do people keep showing up? But at the same time, you know, the, the patio is, is only one, part of a restaurant. And, uh, you know, so one, one of the things I, I, I remember, I've seen a couple of different arguments going or taking place on, on Twitter on, in different states. So, like, for example, when Texas reopened, uh, I think they, they went forward with a restriction that you can dine inside, but you can only have 25% of your normal capacity, which, you know, if you if you imagine you're already, your, your margins are already tight, how are you going to survive making a quarter of what you normally make. And Emory, don't forget the piece about employees as well. If you're trying to lure employees back, as we know, front of house employees, how much they earn is contingent upon how many people are in the restaurant. So having a 25 capacity cap is severe. Right. Right. And not just how many people, but also the turn on the covers, right? Like, I think there's a volume component to it as well. So, like, if you can't move people through and you can't get separate checks and multiple of them, you're not really there's not much opportunity there. Right. It's actually a good point. I mean, it seems small, but we all know seconds count. If you even were some sort of like fast turn and burn restaurant, now you have to disinfect the table or so it seems you have to reset. I mean, nobody's going to be marrying ketchups anymore. That That's a thing of the past. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then uh, on the kind of flip side of, of Texas, we see Georgia, which uh, kind of famously reopened really early. Uh, they don't really have any restrictions on um, what you can do. It, it's basically just up to your judgment as a as a restaurant owner. But I, I think we're still going to run into the question of do diners want that experience right now? Like, do they want to go sit down in a restaurant? How many people are going to do it? You know. 
Right. And the other question, which you've seen, which keeps coming up, is then also, are you endangering your takeout delivery business? If people realize that you have unknown strangers coming onto the premises all the time, maybe they're going to be reluctant to order from you. When we're talking about restrictions, I know that the city of Charleston, right, is interested in adding some more rules to essentially, like you said, it's a it's a pretty, pretty basic guidelines for restaurants that are allowed to reopen right now. I know they were discussing that at city council last night, but didn't didn't take a vote yet. Um, what were they discussing there in terms of some of those extra rules? There's only one extra rule that came up uh, thus far, at least in the way the ordinance was drafted, which would be a capacity limit, which I said is really important. Um, And Georgia doesn't have it, but most of the other states do. Um, So the city is considering that. Otherwise, what it would be doing is just formalizing the recommendations which accompanied the governor's order. So they're um, they're not increasing them in any way. They're just saying this is, in fact, the rule. And if you deviate from it, we can enforce that you don't. Right. And I know one of the concerns brought up was in terms of just getting uh, things, the the supply chain essentially, right? For if if they were required to have a certain amount of hand sanitizer, can they actually get that amount? There are a lot of supply concerns right now, right? Yeah, supply concerns are really big. Um, And I will say, though, the two, two of the measures which a lot of states have adapted, which haven't come up for discussion here at all, is one, closing bars just because those are really difficult to manage. Um, and two, um, barring walk-in service. You have to have a reservation in order to eat somewhere. Um, at least half of the states that are reopening have adopted provisions along those lines. And that's not, not come up for discussion yet. Have you heard anything about um, supply chain concerns for restaurants? I, I mean... It really varies. So when I was at Shim Creek yesterday, and Dave, maybe you can speak to this, because they were talking about some of the beer distributors Mm -hmm. um, were having some trouble. I don't know if you want to talk about that at all. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, on the, uh, you know, on the beverage side of things, um, you know, beer, uh, like any alcoholic beverage in the United States, is regulated through a three-tier system. So uh, it goes from the producer to the distributor and then ultimately to the retailer. So the Shem Creek restaurants or any bar uh, here in Charleston is the is the retailer, um, and they get their alcohol from um, a middleman, a distributor. Um, there are several large ones that serve uh, this area. So depending on um, what those uh, distributors sell and what they have in their cold storage because beer needs to be uh, stored cold if it's being brought to a retail facility that wants to serve it cold uh, in most cases. Um, they There can be lag and so I spoke with some bars um, last week here in downtown Charleston, the Griffin for uh, for one down on Vendu Range, um, uh, Cuddy's, uh, which is a dive bar up in Elliottboro. And what they were dealing with was their um, their distributors were actually coming in um, and swapping out beer that had been sitting in the bar uh, unsold because no one is going into the bar to buy it. Um, because that, that, that beer is out of code. Um, and so what they were doing is swapping in new beer that was in code. Um, so they're they're able to get these beers, um, but the longer it sits, um, the tougher the time is, or the timing is to like line up, you know, for when you're going to reopen, hoping that you have fresh beer. And as much as people joke about, well, you don't need cheap beer to be fresh. That's not why people go to drink. Like it's important to these businesses to have, um, like quality on tap. Um, and, 
and they're struggling a little bit with like lining up. Okay, when we reopen, how do we make sure that our kegs are fresh and our, our cans haven't been sitting here for a while? So that has been a little bit of a challenge on the beer side. I should say too that and Dave has done reporting about our craft beer uh, industry has it's surplus. They have excess beer that they weren't able to get rid of um, when restaurants were closed. Um, although there were some legal changes that allowed them to sell a little bit more and a little, you know, more than they could before the pandemic. But where I want to go with that too is there are some uh, national research firms which are really staying on top of consumer sentiment. And I will say a lot of it does not seem to line up with how folks feel here in Charleston, but there is a significant portion of people who will never drink a draft beer again. They want their own can or their own bottle. They do not want a glass that anyone else has touched. And so nationally, they're predicting that draft, which is already happening, the craft community, obviously they're canning about, but like draft could be so what's particularly interesting about that situation is as you mentioned there's sort of two channels to get uh to get beer there's the draft and then there's package packaged uh cans and bottles is way up um for obvious reasons during the pandemic that's true in south carolina that's true nationally um draft obviously is way down because there are no customers you know the joe uh you know joe riley uh ballpark for example goes through untold number of kegs, uh, you know, on every home game. There are no home games. They're not going through any beer. Uh, no restaurants are open to poor beers. So the ch the shift in channel uh, demand is also really hard from a supply chain perspective. It's not that the beer doesn't exist, but it exists in half kegs, you know, at half, you know, which is what we call kegs. Um, and not in cans. And that means that it's probably going to go to waste. There's no way to repackage that uh, effectively in a way that's going to still make the business money. So even when, and we've seen this in other industries, I did a piece about the, the dairy uh, industry here in South Carolina. Like even if the, the, the liquid, the underlying core product exists, um, the supply chain breakage around getting that product to market in like the package and quantities that consumers are looking for um, is, in some cases insurmountable. Yeah, I know you had an interesting piece. It was, I think it was a few weeks ago. I don't really know the timeline now. It's hard <laughs> time, to time keep Time is track. a flat circle here. I yeah. know, <laughs> right. Um, but about uh, crowlers, so the, the extra large um, cans, right? I'm, try, I'm forgetting the actual yeah, fluid exact. ounce size, but um, that they, and I thought that was so, so interesting that they all come from the same supplier and then of course all of a sudden people are wanting those at a much greater quantity than they typically would have and they were essentially they couldn't keep up keep up with the demand to actually make the container right yeah that's exactly right so these are 32 ounce aluminum um cans they look like large uh beer cans and they're known as crowlers that's a trademarked brand of the ball corporation it was developed between the ball corporation which is a packaging company um and oscar blues brewery which is out of uh colorado but actually has a, a presence in north carolina as well um so they own the the trademark on that and they produce crowlers for the entire nation and it turns out unbeknownst to everyone prior to the pandemic um, they were producing them quarterly based on targeted volumes that they understood their business to be growing at a certain rate okay here we go we're gonna produce these for the next quarter and and you know if we'll see you three months from now obviously uh, with the situation that has developed over the course of 2020 like that timeline does not work and so they had a huge shortage and this is what happened that's how that's one of the main ways 
that small breweries um, like sell their beer for off-premise consumption uh, consumption to uh, customers. So that's another sort of like packaging issue. It's not that the beer doesn't exist, but they had no way to get it to people. We, we've we've talked a little bit about how you know I, I think it, we we know how restaurants have adapted or are trying to adapt to, the, to this um, situation with delivery. How how are bars adapting? Are they? Uh, they're adapting, I would say, um, heroically, but not very successfully. Um, they are tr- a lot of them I'm seeing, in, especially in downtown Charleston, um, are trying, um, and they're trying creative ways to, you know, get customers to spend money with them. Um, you know, bars obviously are big community centers, maybe even more so than restaurants in some cases. They have regulars, people form, you know, deep attachments to these places. They're trying to find ways to monetize that, and I think, um, you know, uh, Proof on King, for example, with its golden ticket promotion. Ocean, where it's selling uh, a chance to get a bar tab for a year sometime down the line. So to generate cash flow now to be able to pay its bills. That's a great example of something that like doesn't really have anything to do with its business, but they've gotten creative and they've tried to find a way um, to make a little money. That said, I mean, Craig Nelson at Proof and, and uh, uh, Scott London at, at uh, the Griffin um, and many of the other bar owners that I spoke with are uh, pretty, you know, not to be too uh too cute here with the language but they're pretty sober about the 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 seriousness of the situation and how these sort of solves are kind of drops in the bucket for them there's no replacement for volume drinkers in your bar um you know packed shoulder to shoulder going through you know two three four five drinks uh per session that's just not but it does seem that's not going to change. And it does seem like that format of bar, at least based on what I saw at Shem Creek yesterday, will always thrive. I mean, what we know is, you know, 18 year olds aren't going to worry about the, you know, they drink. How old do you have to drink? 21 year olds. 18 year olds <laughs> with good fake ideas. 18 with a great idea, right? They're still going to be out there. I think those bars are going to flourish. They'll be fine. What I think is in danger here, and we see this in the restaurant realm as well. There are certain genres that won't make it. And this could very well be, it seems, the end of the kind of craft cocktail, the fantasy bar, right? We've already seen Pegu Club in New York, like Common in Portland have gone under. I think acknowledging that what people don't want is a really intimate setting where it's just the 10 of you, nor can you make money off that, just the 10 of you drinking really expensive liquor that you can't afford because you just lost so much money during this pandemic where the bartender is like, I mean, when's the next time we're going to see him put a straw in a drink, taste it, and then hand it over to you? I mean, that's done, right? So. I think, yeah, craft cocktail bars are out. We know here locally in Charleston. I mean, McCready's tasting uh, room, counter, bar, whatever the hell, whatever the heck you call it, sorry, uh, whatever you call it, um, should have closed a long time ago. I'm amazed it survived as long as it did. But I think David Howard of NDG Neighborhood Dining Group is spot on saying tasting menus are finished. It's done. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, good. Yeah, no, right. And when we're talking uh, cocktails, too, I think it's important to clarify, at least in South Carolina, um, taking drinks to go, that's beer and wine only. Uh, We have seen, I I know in New York, they've been allowed to do cocktails to go. Um, uh, Some places have been allowed to do that, but not in South Carolina, right? So when we're talking bars, able to sell anything to go, that is beer and wine only, right? Yeah. let me, oh, sorry, let me ask you, do, do you think there's anything to that, um, to like delivery or to go cocktails? Like, is anybody here talking about that or, or does that just, you know? 
I think people would love to see it. I think it's a long way off. This state is always biased against spirits, right? Even with this new rule, you can set up a tent. They said you can build yourself a bar and sell beer and wine, but you can't no sell liquor. liquor, which is, which there's just, it is entrenched, this anti-liquor feeling. So I don't think we're ever going to. So I, I tend to agree with Hannah and I have much less experience dealing with this state than anyone on this podcast. So I defer to your sort of perception of you know the state sentiment. But from what I've seen, yeah, I, I tend to agree. And uh, it's unfortunate because the bar owners that I speak with, the people who have the expertise in mixology, who understand the business of putting out great cocktails in batch and understanding the margins and how to make money on that stuff, say it would help. They don't say it would be a panacea for the business, but it would be a big piece of the puzzle for them um, and they're simply not able to do it. I mean, just today before we got on this podcast on Tuesday afternoon, um, Eater published a, a opinion piece um, I think by Jaya um, Saxena um, that was, uh, I think the title was something along, just, just go ahead and make these takeout laws for cocktails permanent um you know like why aren't we just doing this and this was a nationally focused story um so it represents or i think it demonstrates pretty clearly how um you know far off uh south carolina is from sort of the the leading edge of this uh liquor sentiment nationally so so hannah you you just uh mentioned mccrady's and i think that something else we kind of wanted to talk about is is that we've started to see the first round of restaurants that are closing for good. Yep. So what what are what what's happening there? What restaurants have we lost? So, so so far in downtown Charleston, um, the first restaurant to announce it was closing was Parcel 32, which was run by the Patrick Properties Group, which is better known for all the weddings they put on every year. They have had so many brides and grooms had to postpone weddings, which means we now have too many couples and not enough spaces. So I think it makes good sense that they're turning that restaurant into a wedding venue, right? So that was the first to go down. Um, we mentioned McCready's and Monero both. Those two are tied, not because they have the same ownership, although they do, but because they're in the same building and the company wants to sell the building, make a little money. So you get rid of one, you get rid of the other. Uh, as I said, you know, there's good reason to get rid of a restaurant. The other closure, and it's really interesting also to follow reader interest. Um, people were kind of interested in McCready's closing. People were really interested in Nana's closing. Um, I'm selfishly interested because it's right by my house, uh, and I'm, I'm going to miss it a lot. Um, so Nana's was about a decade uh, long uh, run there on the uh, here on the west side, and it was really, I mean, it's, it, we talk about this all the time. It was one of the few Black-owned restaurants on the peninsula. You know, there's some, there are not many. This was the only one that was doing a regular business in garlic crabs, which has become a huge fixture of contemporary uh, gullah cooking. Um, and it's gone. And so that, I think, is the real worry is hey, we're going to lose a lot of restaurants. I mean, I think, you know, estimates keep varying nationally, whether it's going to be 50 percent, 70 percent, like we're going to lose a lot. Um, and I don't think immediately, you know, I, I, a reader asked me, like, are you going to you know, run a list next week of all the ones that didn't make it? I was like, eh, not yet. I, I think a lot of restaurants are going to try, especially once dining rooms reopen. And I think, you know, in four months, five months, six months they're going to be gone. They're not going to make it. Um, and when they do, that's a great opportunity to rebuild Charleston in a better way. Like that's kind of exciting, right? Uh, the concern is making sure it's not all white. And I think that's important. Right. And I know Nana's 
of course, opened a second location right in North Charleston. That one's going to still operate, but we're still losing right from the peninsula and from downtown. And 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 there we're talking a, a takeout restaurant. But right, I'm sure getting all of those new competitors when everyone had to switch to, to takeout was probably one of the challenges for them, right? Sure. There are a ton of challenges. Remember, we went through all this, how much restaurants were being charged to use various delivery services. Like it just because you're a takeout restaurant doesn't mean it's cheap to operate. And there were added costs um, throughout this that a lot of better healed restaurants could sustain in a way that a place like Nana's could not. There was a viral tweet going around uh, like a week ago. Uh, some restaurant posted their uh, revenue receipt from Grubhub and it, it was really bleak. I, I think that's why it went really viral because basically it was showing the restaurant made like over a thousand dollars in a week. And then when you subtract out all the delivery fees and then Grubhub share and all the processing fees, they're left with like $300 out of like $1,100 in revenue, Yep. which is, you know, you, you really do kind of struggle to, to imagine how do you survive as a business in that kind of new reality. I had the same reaction today. I was filed my last expense report, you know, and my expense report, you know, as a restaurant critic, they are typically, you know, I file a month, they are typically four digits. Um, and it was 85 bucks for six weeks. I know, wow. so that's crazy. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, wow. So one of the things you brought up earlier, of course, is the challenge of bringing back employees so so many different layers to that right um uh, who to bring back how many to bring back but also i know some restaurants are concerned about being able to bring back some people at all right concerned that there's they're going to want to return um why is that concern there well, I mean, the reason they might not want to come back is, I mean, it, in many ways, it's the toughest, most demanding job out there, you know. And so the reality is right now, anybody who's taking getting full uh, unemployment benefits is making $900 a week. Now, not everyone's receiving the maximum, but there are people out there, many of whom were employed by restaurants, that will receive $900 a week through the end of July. If you're about to open and what you can offer is, as we said earlier, a couple guests, you know, we we pulled we pulled um, F&B workers at the Charleston area. And I don't remember how they had what the average salary was, but it's a good amount less than 900 for most people. Um, you know, and so and if you take into account, as we said, the limited guest count, how do you bring someone back to make 150 a week? No, nobody wants that. Right. Yeah. And I, and I know that. That's something that uh, in the hotel sector as well, they're worried about just, or just kind of hospitality as a whole that um, you might lose lose some people who want to pursue a different kind of job. Um, right. you know? might, I mean, that, that was sort of, as I talk to more and more people in the industry, you know, part, part, one of the things they've discovered in this time off is like, it's nice to have dinner with my family. It's nice to go to sleep by 10 or 11 o'clock at night, you know, things that have never been a possibility for people in And I also, I wonder, and this is speculation, but I wonder how much that's, that sentiment will be accelerated as, you know, some of these bars and restaurants reopen and those servers are on the front line and there's this attitude whether it's accurate or not um that 
this, uh, you know, going out is something that people are entitled to do. I think I've seen at least a lot of entitlement um, in the way people are discussing being able to access these restaurants. I can't imagine that that will be a good experience for the laborers who are serving those people that feel entitled to be there so it may be that they come back and then they're like gee actually this is even worse than before (laughs) it would be fascinating to see the cross-section of of good tipping and how much you believe coronavirus is real because i mean we've heard from so many people who say you know they're not really concerned about other people i don't know do they tip well i'm gonna guess maybe not you know so i think yeah it could be a really good point Yeah, that Venn diagram yeah, is more of a circle. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was going to say for sure. I'll be I'll be really curious to see what uh what tipping practices emerge from this and and what the consensus is. I I personally feel like if you make this decision to go out and, and patronize restaurants right now, you should be tipping like crazy. You should be Nuts. like tipping probably. Yeah, of course. Yeah, tax um, pay. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'll be I'll be really curious to see though if uh if if people are, are stiffing. Wait, waiters or servers on tips in this time, you're really crappy. But yep. Well, because we know, I mean, we know people have made less money, and we know people think tipping is optional. Right. I, I do want to ask. One of the things that happened really early on is that some of these big dining groups, big restaurant groups, uh, had to lay off a bunch of of workers. Um, so now that some restaurants are, are are reopening, are any of those? Restaurants reopening, and, and have you heard anything about any? Like, are like are yes. they starting to bring bring those people back? Yes, in in certain cases, yes. And generally, they're not bringing everybody back. They're bringing back who they need. Like, Home Team was one that had a number of employees. They have multiple locations. They're back in business. Um, they have not told me that they've rehired everybody. I don't. I don't think that's the case. Nobody had plans on doing that. Yeah. Right. And I know there's one there's one example in terms of a company that has hotels and uh, restaurants, the owner of um, the Vendue and Tides on Folly Beach. They actually this is the only instance I've seen of this brought back more than 100 employees, even though they weren't opening fully yet and said they'll be doing a virtual training for three Hmm. weeks. So that was last week. That's, again, the only example here in Charleston. I've heard of that uh, kind of practice of bringing employees back. but yeah, they said they they wanted to bring them back as soon as they they could and have some kind of work for them to do from home, which obviously in the hospitality sector, uh, not really a job that you could do remotely, obviously. One of the things I wanted to, to ask you about, Hannah, I thought this story was really interesting. Um, obviously, restaurants being so financially challenged right now, uh, a lot have... Uh, dropped expensive PR firms that they were using to promote their restaurants. Um, So you were writing that obviously influencers uh, were already popular in terms of restaurant promotion, but coronavirus might be um, a way that they become even more popular because it's a much cheaper way to get promotion, right? Right. So, I mean, it's a barter system. You're giving away food and you expect these people to take a pretty picture of it and put it on their feed. I mean, this is not a good time to be in restaurant PR. This It was one of the first budget lines that a lot of restaurants caught, understandably. And in terms of other other budget lines being cut, have you heard anything from restaurants in terms of what they're planning to cut back on when they reopen different menus or 
uh, well, what other expenses? Well, I will expenses? say to that, end, Emily, which is kind of interesting, is this has forced operations to streamline and they want to stay that way. I mean, they have in a lot of cases, they've said, you know, we realize we can pull off this part of our operation with two people and we used to do it with nine, you know. So there will not be as many jobs. They have taken all the inefficiencies out of their restaurants. Right. I'm wondering, too, if, if some might decide they want to stay takeout only uh, oh, yeah. or just shift to to really em- emphasize that uh, it's just going to be interesting to see how many change their business model permanently uh, because of this. Right. I mean, I think there's also going to be and we haven't seen this happen yet because it's just much too early. But I think it, and I've been. I've been predicting for a while that there's going to be more happening in people's homes, right? So the chef will come to you, that safe chef who maybe has his antibody test or whatever, you know, and he's going to come and cook for you. And I think restaurants will do that. So on the, on the higher end. So it's not, we don't just deliver the food, we deliver the show and the chef with it. And Dave, what about the bar and brewery space? Uh, What are you hearing in terms of possibly permanent, changes that they'll be making um let's go breweries because we've talked a little bit about bars and there's really nothing doing there but breweries are in an interesting position for the last uh i would say three to five years in the craft beer space um tap rooms on-premise uh bars that the breweries build um have been like the main engines of growing most small breweries, um, right? And people go to the brewery, they purchase beer on site. The margin for the the brewery is pretty strong because they produce it right there. There's no middleman. Um, Obviously this has upended that entire model. And so what we've seen is brewers that, uh, that succeed or that have succeeded in like investing um, in their off-premise sales, uh, especially in their package sales, have done well. And so, or I mean, better at least. Um, moving forward, I mean, I personally, I, I don't think that Charleston drinkers and Char- low country area drinkers are willing to give up, um, you know, like going to, for example, Common House Ale Works and sitting out on the on the patio and, and enjoying beer there. Um, you know, those are good experiences and people tend to be passionate about them in the same way they're passionate about dining at their favorite restaurants. Um, that said, um, for a brewery that doesn't have a exceptional outdoor space that people love and offers opportunities to throw events and whatever, um, I don't, I don't see why they would compete strongly to try to bring in on-premise customers in the same way that they did in the past. I mean, obviously the margins are better, but the risks are considerable and the competition will be very strong. So I think that'll change the landscape for, for our breweries as well, at least somewhat, um, because there's just going to be less of an appetite for people to go out and those customers are going to gravitate to the more popular spots that are more well-equipped to deal with them. One last thing that that I'm kind of curious about um, that I've been sitting here wondering. So I'm sure our listeners are are familiar with sort of these national stories and national concerns about um, shortages, like meat shortages, meat plants shutting down. And then there's also been like stories of uh, you know, like potato farmers or something having to dump crops because the there's just you know they can't get it to the stores. Um, I'm I'm curious. Do do we think there's going to be anything like that locally, or, or any of our like local ingredients that we normally? Have you heard anything about any of that or? 
No, I mean, we don't have, you know, potato farmers growing for McDonald's right. is their issue, right? I mean, our right. local people are pretty local. Like, I haven't heard that the market for Cowlards is going to change in any significant way. I mean, most of our farmers are pretty small scale. Um, that, that's not true across the state. Obviously, we do have some folks who do a tremendous number of requests, but I haven't heard much about that. Um, what we do know, we saw there was a story in the New York Times today that people are cooking more seafood than ever, mm-hmm. which is probably good um so yeah so i mean for us a meat shortage may not be the worst thing right so looking forward over the next several several weeks maybe even months what what are the things that both of you are looking out for what's on your radar in terms of the important things to keep track of in terms of the changes that the restaurant industry is going to be going through I know one of the things you mentioned was, you know, making sure that, um, you know, we know some restaurants are going to close. Uh, we don't want to lose our minority-owned restaurants. Now, that's one of the things you mentioned earlier. But what are some other things you're keeping on your radar? I mean, I guess we'll know a lot more when restaurants reopen, um, when they're allowed to reopen, when we see how many do and how they fare. You know, it's just so early. Even Georgia's only been open for well, a week, a little more than a week. So we, yeah. we don't really know. Uh, what's going to happen. So I think that's what we're keeping an eye on before we can fall into new patterns. Like, of course, I'm fascinated. You know, what is a special occasion going to demand? What are all the things that we associate with restaurants where we require restaurants for will have to probably be replaced or at least adjusted in some way. But I think it's kind of too early. To know. I mean, on my side of things, like I, Charleston is a big drinking town. The low country has a strong tradition of drinking that spans back centuries. Like this will be, in my opinion, um, a significant and long-lasting like change of course for the drinking culture um, in this area. I don't think that means that drinking is going away, but um, we're a very social city. It's a very social culture. Uh, people like spending time with each other and imbibing. And um, you know, we're already seeing sort of like the early hints of people rushing to do that again. I, I tend to suspect that as we start seeing consequences from if we start seeing consequences from that that rush to get back out on the deck and drink beers, like people are going to be that much more reluctant the next time around. So, sorry, Hannah. Right. Go ahead. I was going to say the other thing is, I mean, I, I think there's precedent for almost everything. This idea, like we're in an unprecedented time, there probably is a precedent for it. So, I mean, I think one of the things we may see, and this is one thing I'm curious about, is how much more um, private clubs and this mm. reminded. I mean, this is a lot. Liquor laws drove those to begin with in some ways, as did racism, um, but which are both, you know, very, very much a, a part of our lives now. I mean, we know racism is, is I hope it's peaking. I don't know if it's just peak, but you know, you know racism is a, a major, major part of this whole pandemic, right? Um, and laws. And so if there are very stringent rules about what can happen in dining rooms, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a lot more private dining clubs and dining places, especially the kind that you've got to prove that you don't have the virus to join. I mean, that I really see a stratification down the road. Definitely. I mean, that's definitely yeah. going to happen. I was going to make that point with, with regards to labor. Like, is that going to be a selling point for restaurants and bars to say our entire front of house staff and back of house staff has antibodies? Like, we've all been yeah. tested. Come to mm. our restaurant. I mean, in the same way that 60, is, 70... Is that discrimination, though? Exactly. And it's interesting you bring that up. I was just in touch this morning with the woman at the city who's an ADA coordinator because I recently sat in on a webinar for the South Carolina Restaurant Association. And their advice was, if you hear if someone's your guest is coughing, 
you should ask them to leave so other people are aren't uncomfortable. But the problem is coronavirus isn't the only thing that makes you cough. And it does seem to me that it does fall under what we classify as a disability. If you have this, an, an impairment is how they you know define it that has physical repercussions, you know, emphysema counts, you know. And so if you're starting to ask every coughing person to leave your dining room, I think you're in a major, you know, discriminatory situation. Right. A lot, a lot of unanswered questions. Yeah, there. yeah no, it's, <laughs> it's going to be, it, it is, it's, I think it's just going to be fascinating to watch what, what happens. Um, so I, I think, I think that's a, that's a good place to um, leave the conversation. Um, so I do think uh, for our listeners, we are all recording um, from our homes as, as we've done for the last couple of episodes. So I do want to do uh in the last couple of episodes, we, we've asked our, our guests the, these same couple of questions to close it out. So I am just like curious what your own um, habits have been during during this time, specifically your, your eating habits. Because I know I know Hannah, we you've talked to, about this to me in the past. You don't you don't necessarily do a lot of cooking on your own. So so how are you getting by? Cooking. I mean, it's been really fun. Yeah, I've been doing a ton <laughs> of cooking. Uh, yeah, so it's, I mean, I've caught up for the last ten years of not doing it. Yeah. Awesome. And any, any, any particular recipes that you've uh, stumbled on? Or? I mean, so I don't know what inspired me to save it. Um, a few months ago, the New York Times had a pullout section after the New York Times cooking. It was like one dish meals or something. Something that sounded doable. Sounded, and basically I've cooked through that whole thing. Dave, how about you? I mean, it, it will probably come as no surprise given my beat. Like I've just been drinking a prodigious amount. Um, <laughs> and I, don't, I don't even mean that. Like, I'm not trying to say that to sound cool. It's just like, there's, very little for me to do. I get done with work. I'm in, I, you know, I exercise for a little while. I go on a bike ride with a mask or something. Um, and then there's not really anything left to do. And so I, I drink. Um, and, you know, there's the added, there's the added sort of wrinkle of, I feel like I'm supporting my local, uh, my local purveyors because I've got to go through all this, this alcohol because someone's got to buy it. Otherwise these places are going to go out of business. So, uh, yeah, I've been, I've been drinking quite a bit. I've been saving my aluminum cans, uh, because I'm going to donate them to the MUSC, uh, burn victims relief fund. They collect aluminum cans. Um, but, uh, um, so now my kitchen is just full of empty beer cans. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Any- I Oh, I definitely sorry. feel like, a, yeah, I was just going to say, I definitely feel like cocktail hour is back in a big way. Um, Did it ever go away? Cocktails, I don't know, well, cocktail I, hour is back I, and I it's earlier. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's what I mean. It's just that like now that's become for me the, the thing that delineates like the work day from lounge time, like recreation time is that like five o'clock comes and I'm, I'm making myself a drink, like, yeah. the, the- which is not not what I used to do, but. That's my new habit. That is kind of that marker, the switch from coffee to whatever your chosen beverage is that evening. Yeah. So um, our readers, listeners, of course, can keep track of uh, food coverage by subscribing to the newsletter that that Dave, you put together every week. So um, how can someone sign up for the newsletter? Yes, uh, Post and Courier's food newsletter g- goes out every Wednesday at, uh, at 10 a.m. So we're recording this on Tuesday, so just about uh, 24, uh, 22 hours from now um, it will come out. They can, uh, readers who want to sign up can go to... Uh, 
the website, our, our post and courier website and sign up via the newsletter tab or go directly to the sign up form, uh, which is uh, bit.ly slash PC food newsletter. Um, that's slash PC food newsletter. Perfect. And how can listeners get in touch with either of you um, over Twitter or email? What's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, you can always email me. It's hraskin at postandcourier.com. I'm also active on Twitter and Instagram if that's their preferred method. And we do have a Facebook group, but I never, ever check my messages there. So that is the worst way to reach me. Hannah's extremely reachable by all methods except for Facebook, where Correct. she's completely unreachable. Yeah, I need to have that on my business card. I look at every month or two. I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, and I'll put a one last plug in. If you liked this podcast, we have a food podcast with Hannah and Dave. And uh, if you're looking for something to do, if you're bored, we have hundreds of episodes, at least a hundred episodes. I don't know the exact number. There's at least a hundred episodes of, of content for you to go back and listen to and learn all about um, dining in the Southeast and beyond, as we you say on this show. So uh, that's the widow. Find it wherever you know quality podcasts are sold. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> well, thanks for letting us crash here, though. This was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was great. Thanks so much. And listeners, remember, if you have comments, questions, or suggestions for this podcast, Understand South Carolina, you can find us on Twitter at UnderstandSC. All right, and that's all. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier in Charleston. Our theme song is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music by searching for Billy, that's with an I-E, Fountain, on Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can get in touch with us by emailing understandsc at postandcourier.com or, of course, you can tweet at us with any questions or comments. And if you're a fan of the show, please take a second to like us and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast Store. See y'all later.